Hey, just want to get ahead of this episode as always to remind you guys that this is an adult language podcast and it deals with adult themes. In addition, we'll be discussing gods from multiple traditions that I did not grow up in and I'm currently not practicing. As such, I, uh, as always, would like to let you know that if you find anything wrong with the way I've described any deities today, you are welcome to contact me at white trash historian at Instagram. I look forward to opening a dialogue. All right, let's get into the episode. Also, um, actually, real quick, this episode contains spoilers for the 2022 uh, cult classic game, uh, Cult of the Lamb. Five points to a pentagram. Five portents of doom. Five siblings stood abreast. Five gods and one tomb. Five becomes four, becomes three, becomes two, becomes one, becomes nothing. In this week's episode of Cavalcade of Tales, we'll be discussing the deaths of gods. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Cavalcade of Tales. Uh, this week we are talking about the deaths of gods. Um, as always, I'm your host, Drew, the millennial with a history degree. Thank you for letting me uh, take an extra day to get this done. I was uh, this weekend uh, surprised with the incredibly uh, thoughtful and big gift of a PlayStation 5 and Final Fantasy 16. Um, it's also gotten very warm in New England. Um, it's for, I apologize because I have no idea what the conversion is to Celsius, but it's, uh, supposed to be in the eighties all week and extremely humid because of thunder showers. So, uh, and that started on Saturday. So my body was just like, I cannot function. I do not function well in the heat. So that's why this week's episode is late. I've actually only played four hours of Final Fantasy 16, so I can't even really blame it on that. But to tie it into today's episode, um, one of the common tropes and jokes that are made about uh, various RPGs, including JRPGs, is uh, the plots somehow always boil down to it's time to fight God with the power of friendship. So what this week's episode is looking into is the concept of the death of God. And so for this week, I have for the you know, our three talking points, because three is a magical number. Um, I will be discussing some philosophy, philosophy, philosophy about the death of God. I will touch upon three different uh, deities from various mythologies who have died. And then to wrap it all up, I will talk about the 2022 hit game, Cult of the Lamb. Um, as I said in the opening, there will be major spoilers because I will be discussing uh, every single major boss and the historical context for them. Uh, so this is going to be a fun one, and I uh, hope you guys enjoy it, and I hope it was uh, worth the wait. So when you think philosophy, one of the uh, first things that uh, usually comes to mind is, especially when it comes to like dying gods, is Nietzsche. Um, I'm going to start this segment out uh, just by saying uh, I am not a philosopher. <laughs> I am a historian. Um, I don't knock people who like philosophy. It's just, ugh, it is so not for me. I have a lot of trouble with it. I almost failed it in college. I took a class actually on Nietzsche and um, it was like a music and Nietzsche class. And I'm like, oh, this will be fun. Not realizing that it was a, a high level philosophy course. And it was the first philosophy course I had ever taken in college. Uh, the only good thing about that is I did really well on the final because I was able to tie it into... Um, my favorite game of all time, Nier Automata. But anyway, uh, so one of the big things is uh, Nietzsche wrote a book in 1882 known as The Gay Science. Uh, let us all remember that in the 1800s, uh, gay had a different connotation. Uh, uh, so to pull a quote directly from that, I'll do have a couple of these. God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him. 
So I wanted to pull this quote because I think like when you're talking about like, oh, God is dead or nihilism and shit like that, like it, if anybody who likes philosophy will just pop out of the word being like, you talking Nietzsche? And it's like, no, I don't even know if I'm saying his fucking name right. It's like, are you popping out of bushes because you're homeless because philosophy isn't a real job? That's what I'm going to get angry emails about. It's not going to be like being like, oh, you were like slightly wrong about a mythological story. It's no, because I'm coming for fucking philosophers. And I, yes, I know the stupid bullshit of, oh, hating philosophy is a form of philosophy. Get out of my yard. Uh, so to make sense of the statement and a few other statements, I actually pulled from an article called God is Dead, Nietzsche's Most Famous Statement Explained, uh, which was written by Jack Maiden, and it's uh, on philosophybreak.com, because I needed someone to explain this to me, because um, if there's one thing philosophers are good at, it's taking a lot of words to say next to nothing. Um, I didn't realize this was going to turn into just like my mini rant on fucking philosophy, but, you know, here we are. Um... Uh, that's I don't know anyway so one of the big things about this God is dead is it has nothing to do with atheism um Nietzsche was writing during the um enlightenment period which was a high science revolution and also a revolution in science in general because what a lot of people don't realize or don't know is that science comes from the which is a latin word science scientia scienca technically because i don't think the second c would be soft because there's no soft c's in latin s-c-i-e-n-c-a i think which is just knowledge and a lot of like what would be considered natural sciences um had to do a uh, science and theology were mixed uh, fuck i got ice cream on the table um Sorry, it's 80 degrees in my apartment, um, and for my Australian listener, that's a 26.6 repeating degrees. Um, so I was eating ice cream in between takes because it was really hot in here. <laughs> um, so yeah, so you figure, um, it wasn't until the Enlightenment where they started kind of separating science and religion. Um, a good example of this is... Uh, Isaac Newton, who we all know as that schmuck who couldn't dodge an apple um, and figured out the theory of gravity. And but he was also technically an alchemist. So he was studying science and doing alchemical mixtures in order to try to use the works of science to better understand Christian theology. Um because that's what happened when Christianity really started mixing with um, freaking alchemy. Was it's just like the reason you do alchemical processes is so that you can get a control of nature similar to the God, similar to God, P capital G Christ Christian God. And by doing that, you have a better understanding of him, which is like a good thing. And there's also, you know a lot of stuff with, you know, dealing with threes, because three is a magic number, and then, of course, you have, like, the Holy Trinity. So. Uh, but this is not Alchemist chat. <laughs> I'm getting way off track again. So, this next segment has a bunch of little bits of quotes mixed in, uh, because the issue, the reason Nietzsche is talking about this God is dead was... This concern that, quote, the belief of a Christian God has become unbelievable, end quote, and that everything, quote, was built upon this faith, prepped up by it, grown into it, end quote. Um, some things like multiple monarchies, the um, most of European um, uh, society, uh, to further go on the quote, he says, quote, the whole of our European morality, end quote. And he says it is doomed for collapse. Um, so one of the things, and then of course he waxes poetic for a bit, quote, how shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers, who will wipe this blood off us? 
What water is there to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy as it? Which is very interesting because it goes into a lot of, you know, things that I recognize from my uh, bits of anthropology training. Um, you know, festivals of atonement, sacred games, and vestiges, and ceremony. water is usually a good cleanser and ceremonial thing, but... Um, one of the big things about this is essentially the way this person interpreted it and the way I will be saying it is this whole thing is a response to the enlightenment and that because we are trying to use like natural laws and sciences to explain the world and its concepts it jeopardizes the inarguable authority and legitimacy that certain processes and values have being backed by a Judeo-Christian God. Now let me try to explain that sentence. Um, let's take, for example, um, the concept... Uh, I don't know which commandment it is, because um, I'm a pagan, so I never learned the Ten Commandments in like order. Um, I think the only reason I know the Eighth commandment is because it's the a simpsons episode title uh lisa and the eighth commandment uh it's from when uh homer's stealing cable i think it's like season like three or four but there's a one about adultery which is you know don't fuck someone else's wife and i think and because it's deemed a sin and it's deemed as immoral it's a value that is held by judeo-christian societies so what Nietzsche is arguing here, as I understand, and how I understand this cliff-noted version of it, essentially, is that if we go out of our way to essentially, if, as we develop more into science and kill God, we no longer have this notion of sin that will stop us from doing things that we shouldn't. Because scientifically, you can be like, oh, it makes sense that you want to fuck your neighbor's wife. Your brain is hardwired. You see her tickled bitties and you're just like, she would make a great partner because her large breasts means she has more mammary glands, which means that our offspring have a better chance of survival because they will feed more. And that complete and that just completely gets rid of all sorts of like moral implications. And so, I mean, it does in to fight against this both my description which partially is probably just due from not understanding how the fuck philosophy works um it doesn't necessarily point out the social thing of you know you can be seen as a problem in the group if you keep fucking with mated partners but uh, and humans are very social creatures but anyway so let me let me check my notes for this a bit more so the removal of this, uh, well, the death of God essentially means that we have no real, like, if we have nothing to place our values towards, which could be, you know, social or otherwise, we become sort of jaded and cynical, and it would lead to something that Nietzsche called cultural nihilism. And since there would be no deities and science does not care for the socio-cultural part of life, there would be no real guiding force for value creation. So we'd just be like, our values don't mean anything because like, what is enforcing them? I'm looking at the timestamp right now and I'm about to cross 14 and a half minutes and I feel like nothing I just said made any sense. So I think I just did philosophy. Um, it's a bit weird, and I hope, and I know it's, I just keep taking the piss out of philosophers, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the philosophical elephant in the room when I was talking about gods who die, and I think it is an interesting thing to think about this concept of, like, 
the dichotomy between like religion and science where like you can't really believe where like it seems like you have to have like there is this one side or the other which i don't know it's a bit rough as a uh person who studies and talks about uh history and mythology and whatnot because um in a way mythology is just us trying to explain how things worked before we knew what science was but in the same way it's also a study of how humans are humans so yeah i don't know i uh, i don't know but it's but yeah i think i think if you could take away anything from this segment other than uh, don't get major in philosophy is that the science and religion are not diametrically opposed just because you know someone is a you know not all christians are fucking like creationist earth christians who are just like well the earth is only two thousand years old and that fossils are uh tricks by the devil to make us think that it's not that old um and there's also the flip side where uh, all scientists are just like well there is no god because that doesn't make any sense because who would believe in a guy in the sky that's why you know you'd be better off believing in a flying spaghetti monster and then we have pastafarians and people are taking their passport photos in spaghetti with spaghettis in their hair what the hell is this podcast (laughs) so let's get to the shit that i actually know about um so we're gonna start with some mythology um the first deity that died well it's not the first deity that like died in general is technically one of the gods i'll be talking about later's tradition is a lot older this one but our first example freya do you have to get your hair fucking everywhere (laughs) i was getting cuddles um the first god i'll be talking about is uh, the Greco-Roman god uh, Pan, uh, who in Roman traditions was called Faunus. So Pan was the god of the wilds, uh, often depicted as a large satyr with half the body of an adult man and uh, the lower half of a goat, uh, with uh, two horns coming out of his head, similar to ram horns. Uh, But it is also often said that his face is either ugly or he is deformed in the face somehow. The worship of Pan was meant to not be confined into temples because he is the god of the wilds. So rather, he would be celebrated in pastures, groves, and grottoes. Uh, in addition to being the patron god of Arcadia, he also ruled over shepherds, hunters, and rustic music. Um, so there was a few different things I found on his parentage. It honestly depends on the tradition. Uh, sometimes um, the one I found most often was that he's the son of Hermes and Dryope. Um, but there was also some where he's like the son of Zeus. Uh, there was one where he's also the son of Penelope, who's Odysseus's wife. Um, which is weird, because God knows that woman already need, has a fucking good time, you know, rough life, because she's got to deal with fucking Odysseus. Ugh. Ugh. Just, just you wait, guys. If you think I had an awful rant about philosophers at the beginning of this episode... On my, I have a just group of sticky notes on my bathroom door that are all just different podcast ideas. And one of them is how every Greek hero fucking sucks. (laughs) They're all terrible. Odysseus is a fucking asshole who's just like, oh yeah, I'm going to leave my poor wife for two decades while I fuck some other women. And then when I do actually get back to my homeland and also like, first also like technically like at at that point Telemachus should have been just king because he was the son and he would have been in his like late 20s at this point but anyway (laughs) and then he gets home and instead of being like okay I'm home all you fuckers leave my wife alone no he's like let me get into a little disguise so that we can have this nice moment with my dog who's been waiting for 20 years for me to come home just to die and then I'm going to set up a, an impossible task for all of the suitors. And then I'm going, when it's time, you know, everybody's trying to do this thing and they can't do it. I'll come up, whip out 
you know, whip off my disguise and then just single-handedly shoot an arrow through all the suitors' dick out instead of just talking to my life like a horrible human being. Fuck Odysseus. <laughs> I don't know what's going on with me today. Like, I started doing mindfulness training um, to try to be a better person mentally, and uh, apparently... By not losing my shit at work, apparently I am now just going to go on various rants during my podcast. Um, so Pan is not the child of Penelope. I'm calling it here. Um, although the parentage is uncertain, uh, there is one thing that is for certain. Uh, Pan's mother is often very disturbed by uh, his appearance and the fact that he's half goat. That she will abandon him at the base of mount olympus to be found by the gods and taken in and they a lot of them think he's fun so one of the things he's most known for is his uh, musical instrument the pan flute which is a assembly of reeds built together so the and this was actually really interesting when i was doing the research because i never actually knew the story of how he got the pan flute so apparently the story goes pan was trying to seduce the wood nymph shrinks is that yeah shrinks s-y-r-i-n-x i hope i'm saying that right uh, my greek doesn't exist so however like most of the wood nymphs that pan went after uh she fled uh scared of his advances because he was ugly freya will you quit attacking the fucking backs i love you but be good thank you just yeah get cozy um so what happens is she runs and turns herself into reeds with the assistance of her fellow nymphs. Uh, Pan, distraught that another wood nymph got away so he wasn't going to bust a nut, uh, which could be also a funny uh, nature pun in this sense. But anywho, uh, a, w a strong wind blew and there was over the reeds stop attacking the goddamn box i gotta move my microphone box because my cat wants to eat it like i don't feed her so a wind blows through the reeds <laughs> this is this is one hell of a recording this is what happens when i record late um and he hears music and don't so he's just like this is really pretty so he doesn't know that shanks is a reed so he cuts all the reeds and fashions them into his signature instrument and that's um it's suggested that shrinks uh unfortunately died and became part of pan's flute so there's little stories here and there um i believe the story of King Midas actually involves, um, well, at least part of it, is there was a musical competition between Pan and Apollo. Um, I don't know why I didn't write any notes of this down, uh, but I know one of them is not happy about the outcome. I want to say Pan. And to punish Midas for judging and not letting him win, he gives Midas the ears of a donkey. Which is just what I just needed after uh, he, I believe this is before he gets the golden touch. Um, so, our story of the death of Pan comes from the Greek historian Plutarch. Um, so, Plutarch says that, that this would have happened during the first century. So, we're looking at the 0 to 100 uh, CE, or Common Era. Um, an important thing to know, because I don't think I ever actually talk about it, I use the B-C-E-C-E -E thing, where it's uh, before Common Era, Common Era. Um, although saying in the Year of Our Lord, or the B-C-A-D thing, um, isn't, like, n incorrect. It's the same thing. It's just, it's a way of saying the year without bringing God into it, which is a very interesting thing in this episode about the death of gods and the way scientists don't like using gods so that's why they don't want to say in the year of our god 2023 for example because so it's 2023 ce 
but in the first century CE, uh, Plutarch said that there was an Egyptian sailor named Thaumas, and he was sailing past the Greco Imans when he heard a booming voice proclaim, The great god Pan is dead. Uh, Thaumas, being a gossipy sailor, I guess, uh, quickly spread the word about the death of Pan. So this is a very well-known uh, death of a god. It's He's the only Greek god to die. But what's interesting is that we don't know how he died. Some people believe that the death of Pan has to do with the transition of Christianity in the Roman Empire. Uh, because in the first century when the death of Pan takes place, this is the reign of Emperor Tiberius, who was the second emperor. And, well, and we're also talking like very early uh, first century, as this is the emperor who was alive and ruling during the alleged time of Christ. So you're talking uh, the year zero to about the year 33. Um, so that would be Tiberius, but uh, to be fair, it would also be uh, probably a little bit of Caligula. I don't know. I'm a little shaky on my... F I know the first five Roman emperors really well, um, just because I really like this one Roman historian who focuses on Roman women. Uh, who uh, Dr. Emma Southern. And I have an excellent book of hers called Agrippina X... Exile Empress Hustler Whore, because I got the British edition, so I got the good subtitle. And uh, the great thing about Agrippina is she's directly related to the first five emperors, because she's the granddaughter of Augustus. She's the niece of Tiberius. She's... Yeah, she's the niece of Tiberius. She's the brother to Caligula. She is the wife and niece of Claudius, and she's the mother of Nero. And then, in addition to that, to help set myself in time, the fall of Nero is in the year 69, which is a very easy year to remember, because, obviously. <laughs> so, it would have been Tiberius and maybe, like, a little bit of Caligula. Um, so, there's also the fact, um, another interpretation in this concept, that it's the switchover from paganism to Christianity is pan is also the Greek word for all. So therefore, one interpretation from scholars is that this was the death of all pagan gods in favor of the Judeo-Christian god. To go even further than that, there's a lot of depictions of Satan in Christian art and lore that is very similar to the uh, way that uh, Faunus and Pan look. You know, you can if you think about it, you, you know, Satan is often depicted as like a goat man and he's got horns, but I don't know, usually when we see Satan, he's hot because, I don't know, people, a lot of people need to work through some shit. Our second god on the docket is uh, the Egyptian god Osiris, or as the Egyptians called him, Usir. Um, another fun thing that I learned uh, doing research is that Osiris is the Latinized name. Uh, the Egyptians wouldn't have called him Osiris. They would have called him Osir. Or at least he would have been called Usir until... Um, there's so much cat hair in my microphone. Um, he would have been called Usir until the Ptolemaic dynasty because they were Macedonian Greeks that were put in after Alexander the Great came and just fucked his way through Europe. Um, so I'm going to refer to him as Osiris just because it's easier and it's the way I know him better. Uh, but I want it on record. I do know he has an actual Egyptian name of Usir. Uh, so Osiris is the Egyptian lord of the underworld and judge of the dead. He is also uh, very important in the fertility and the sort of cycles of life and death. Um, like, for example, the death of plants from the flooding of the Nile in order to change the soil so that it is susceptible for planting again. Um, he became a large part of the Egyptian pantheon after absorbing the roles and functions of Anjeti 
and Kentanamenti, which were two gods of fertile, uh, fertility and agriculture. And uh, some historians have traced Osiris potentially to being a uh, Syrian deity before he was an Egyptian one, although the evidence of that's a little shaky. That's just something I read on Encyclopedia Britannica. Um, so, in terms of the story of how Osiris died, Osiris is very interesting because he dies a couple times and eventually has to be brought back. So the way it works is that Osiris's brother, his name is Seth, and Seth is not happy that Osiris is, like, the main man. So as Osiris and his wife Isis slept, um, Seth measured Osiris in his sleep and made a golden casket and that only Osiris could fit into. So then the ne- once the casket was complete, uh, Seth challenged all the gods, saying that only the worthiest god of egypt could fit into the box perfectly um obviously many gods try and osiris is the only one that fits because it was made for him once he gets in there uh uh seth pulls a like scooby-doo prank and uh nails him into the side and sends him down the river isis is just like oh shit i gotta go find my husband this is bad um it is late the casket gets destroyed um, and Seth is the one who finds Osiris's body. And he's just like, enough is not enough. So he chops his brother into 14 pieces. Most of the versions say 14. There's a couple ver- other various versions I saw online that have more pieces of him. But um, 14 was the most common I found. Uh, Isis, wishing to give her brother husband a proper burial, uh starts looking for the pieces and with the help of her sister Nebthet she finds 13 of them however she can't find his dick because this is an ancient culture so the penis is important like Romans put that shit on everything you actually if you okay back in time if you were a Roman male youth you actually walked around with an amulet of two dicks with holding a saw sawing through an evil eye because that was a protection charm that you had to wear until you became an adult and you wore an adult's toga um that's one of the little pet pro if i ever you know got like insanely rich somehow that's one of the little pet projects I would go into is I would want to see, you know, after I, you know, paid off all my student debt and, you know, set up my family. Nice. I would uh, travel and look at all the weird little, like, trinkets. Like, there's so many weird little trinkets and, ev- and like, everybody just loved putting dicks on everything. Like, there's something about carving something into stone and immediately everyone becomes a 13-year-old boy and they're just like, well, we got to put a dick on it. Um... Because you could also, there was also these, like, fun things where, like, in pilgrimage, I know I'm off topic again, apparently this is just going to be a very tangential episode, but you could get amulets when you were on medieval pilgrimage, and, like, the different types of amulets said the different types of things you were down for while you were out on pilgrimage, so, like, you could have one which was, like, a a full-ass vulva being carried in a litter by dicks, and that was your way of saying, I am on pilgrimage, but I'm also down to fuck. So I, I don't know, I just, there's so much dick shit. And then there's like, you can go on the fact that like a lot of times in, in Egyptian, there's a level of care about the uh, penis being erect. But if you look at Greco-Roman art, the phallus is, you know, small. And a lot of times you look at the gods and their dicks are like the statues and they're just like, why is their dick small? Because back then sexuality was a woman's work and so if you were horny all the time it was actually a feminine trait so if someone was depicted with like a massive hard schlong it's because they were actually making fun of that person uh the only people who were supposed to have massive schlongs were the satyrs and the greek god priapus uh where we get the term priapism um but enough about um enough about tangential dick chat um in this case isis couldn't find the dick 
uh, not because not for her lack of searching. However, it's because when Seth cut up Osiris's body and threw his penis, I don't know, like over his shoulder or some shit, uh, a fish ate it, so it couldn't be recovered. So what happens is, is Isis just makes a dildo, uh, attaches it to her husband that way, and then brings her husband back to life through magical rites, breathing life into him, and uh, they use the term lying with, uh, which is a euphemism for she f- she fucks him back to life. And like, get it, girl. Fucking good on you. Um, Osiris has to return to govern the dead because he's was resurrected, but he's not whole. But the good thing is, is that since he fucked his sister wife with even though it was with a fake dick uh they were still able to conceive the god horus which uh could become the new leader of the gods and eventually horus defeats seth um there's also some weird stories about like jizz covered lettuce and whatnot um because egypt um what's really interesting is that the concept of osiris and um the death of osiris and then the birth of Horus is that this was used for partially for the divine right of Kings. So it was believed that when the uh, old Pharaoh died, he became part of Osiris and therefore his progeny, his son would become Horus by comparison, because like if he's part of Osiris, then his son's obviously Horus. So that's just a neat little thing there. The final part of our mythology segment, uh, we're going to Japan. So I apologize in advance for any pronunciation issues. And hopefully there'll be a lot less rants because this one's a female deity. Um, or if there are rants, it's going to be like feminist rants. But this is in- Izanami no Mikoto, or she who invites. Um, I'm going to be using the shortened term of her name, which is just Izanami. Um, and again, we're going to be talking about some uh, brother-sister love, um, because that's how a lot of these old mythologies work, because um, also that's just how they would fucking work. One of the things we just got to come to terms with the fact is, like, if in the concept of, like, you know, only two people starting a species, it's there's going to be some incest. I am not condoning incest, but it's there. I don't have the time to fight for it, and I don't plan to. So, in Shintoism, uh, Izanami is the mother goddess of creation, and she is also the uh, goddess of death in the underworld. So the way her story works is she and her brother-husband Izanagi... um, Persona 4 fans are probably losing their mind because Izanagi is the name of the persona of the main character, um, whose name we learn is Yu Narukami from the anime, um, which was my introduction to the Persona series. And one of the upsides of me losing my entire PlayStation Network account is the fact that I can replay Persona 4 Golden and uh, try to get all my trophies back. So, the way it worked is Izanagi and Izanami stirred the primordial ocean with the heavenly spear which created land. From there, they were tasked with populating that land. Uh, So they got married, uh, and then they tried to have their first child, but their first child was the leech child Hiruko, who later became the Shinto god of Ibisu. Um, they believe that the first child came out deformed and fucked up, uh, their words, not mine, because, um, it said that the, ver- the thing I read was that it was because Izanami spoke first, which kind of insinuates weirdly that, like, I could be reading into this too much, but it kind of, like, insinuates that, like, oh, our baby came out fucked up because you were on top. And it's just like, look, fucking girls gotta get what girls gonna get. And, like, there is no scientific evidence and no reason to believe that different sexual positions affect the way the egg is fertilized and will affect the way your child comes out. The only type of sex that's gonna really affect the way your the conception of your child is anal or oral because it's not actually gonna get to the fucking egg. 
Hey, look, I did get a rant in. Okay. So after having the correct type of sex, whatever the fuck that means, um, they had various other deities and islands. Uh, however, Izanami died during childbirth of the fire god Kagatsushi. I think I'm saying that right. Because I want to say that is a level up material in Shimagami Tensei 3 Doctor. Um, so what happens is during the birth of the fire god, she gets burnt to a crisp in the delivery. And then she has to go to the world of Yomi, the land of darkness. Izanagi, a, a true wife guy, uh, grief-stricken runs into Yomi to get his wife back. However, she has eaten of the food of the underworld and she cannot leave. So this next segment of the story, you should hear some similarities to some Greek myths because this is one of those fun things where, like, even though everybody's in a different part of the world, you can get a lot of overlap in your stories. Um, for example, in this one, you're going to have, oh, you ate the fruit of the underworld, so you're trapped there, like Persephone. You're going to have um, some don't look back, um, not just a... No, wait, that it's don't think twice is the Kingdom Hearts 3 soundtrack song, which is really good. So... What happens is that Izanagi tries to steal his wife out of Yomi. However, he lights a fire so that he can see his way out of the darkness. And when he turns around to look at his wife, uh, her face is rotting and she's full of maggots. In disgust and horror, he screams and he runs away. However, uh, his wife gets really pissed off about this. So in addition with a bunch of female de demons, she chases after her, after Izanagi, um, and chases him out of Yomi. When Izanagi uh, leaves Yomi, he steals it with a rock and his wife is pissed off. She's like, how the fuck dare you? How dare you do this to me? Your dick ain't that good anyway. I'm going to hang out here with all my fucking demon attendants. Get fucked. And she's like, I'm going to kill all the humans you bring out. Every day, I'm going to take thousands of humans. And he's just like, oh yeah? I'm going to make more thousands of humans so that it will offset the loss and human population will constantly grow and that's part of the myth of how population growth works um izanagi then uh, later goes on to create the sun and moon amaterasu and susano and he makes another deity um all while he's cleansing himself from this encounter uh, but the two lovers are never reunited and that is our mythology section on the three gods who die. Before we get to our final segment about the Cult of the Lamb, I would just like to do a quick plug for the Patreon. You too can support this podcast at patreon.com slash cavalcadeoftales. For $5 a month, you'll be able to join the Discord community um, and the We Don't Talk About Book Club book club. Um, currently, uh, the plan for June was to read The Song of Achilles, but... Uh, there are no patrons yet, so I haven't read it. Um, but uh, since this episode is coming out right before July, um, if people do join, I do want to have a book club announcement. Um, just in case people do join the Patreon, I which I wish you will. Um, that the next month's book for July is... The Five, The Untold Story of the Women of the Jack the Ripper Cases by Hallie Rubenhold. This is a very interesting work, and I love the way Hallie Rubenhold does it. She's currently on this, uh, she's started to make it her mission as a historian to focus on true crime, but instead of, like, glorifying these fucking people who are out there killing, especially a lot of times women, um, for example, uh, one of in the U.S., uh, because we're a fucking dumpster fire, the um, most often the the group of people who are often uh, victims of murder are usually trans women of color. Um, and there are certain places, including the uh, area I live in, because I live in a shithole in the middle of the mountains, um, where it, depending on the gender of the body will depend on whether or not it's considered a cadaver on site. Um, for example, uh, in the town where my parents live, uh, there was a woman who was cut into pieces in the local park 
And uh, that wasn't considered a dead body uh, in the police report. It was just considered debris and a, a like a crime had taken place. It was considered waste, not a fucking body, even though this was a human woman that was chopped into pieces. So uh, Heli Rubin Holds the Five is a very interesting work because it takes these five women who were killed by the same man. We don't know who it is. And it's really interesting because she doesn't fucking care who Jack the Ripper is. The point of this book, and I think what she does really well, is it's not about the killer. Who gives a fuck? This is clearly a deranged psychopath who's taking advantage and killing vulnerable women. She wants to talk about the five victims. And it's a very excellent book and will be the let's not, uh, we don't talk about book club, book club pick for uh, July is The Five, the untold story of the women of the Jack Ripper case. I'm fucking up that subtitle, but the book is too far away. Um, yeah. Uh, so if you want to join the book club and uh, talk about it on a Discord and then have a Zoom meeting where we all get to discuss the book and uh, possibly get drunk, um, age is permitting, uh, you can do that at uh, cavalca- uh, patreon.com slash cavalcativetales. Um, all right. Uh, shameless plug over. So it would be negligible since the theme of this episode was partially built out uh, because of the concept of video games where you kill gods. Um, With God of War being too easy an example, I decided to pick one of my favorite games of 2022. Um, Probably my third favorite game of 2022. My top three games being Bayonetta 3, Elden Ring, and then Cult of the Lamb. So Cult of the Lamb was a fun little... I don't know if it was an indie hit or not. Um, I've seen some videos on TikTok, but... It was made from a small company, and the premise of the game is you are a lamb about to be sacrificed, and you are the last of the lamb. But it is there are the four bishops of the old faith, and there there is a fifth god bishop uh, who is prisoned. And by killing the lamb, he cannot get the power he needs to come back however you are a defiant little lamb and you start a cult using the power of this god to kill the other four bishops and yeah so the way this is going to work for this segment is there are seven one two three four yeah there are seven main bosses in the game uh, are these various gods and bishops that you have to fight and kill. And so I'm just going to go through all of them. Uh, in order of a traditional playthrough, you can do these in a different order because you can technically defeat the bosses in any order. It just depends on how many followers you have. But this is the you know standard kind of order. So the youngest, his name is Leshy. In Cult of the Lamb, they are one of the four bishops of the Old Faith and the main boss of the Darkwood area. The youngest, uh, they lost their eyes to the one who waits. During the boss fight, Leshy harnesses the power of their followers, turning into their eldritch form, which is a massive tree-like worm with a giant lamprey mouth. Leshy is Chaos, the only bishop that isn't directly tied to a horseman of the apocalypse. However, Leshy is one of the... Uh, of the seven bosses, four of them have other mythological roots, unless she is one of them. Um, I spoke a little bit about this in the Final Fantasy episode, um, which would have been... Uh, well, it wasn't the Final Fantasy episode. It would have been... The episode would have been called The City Hawkins Monster Mash. I believe it was the third part, the after party, because that was the one that was half Final Fantasy and half Yokai. In that one, we spoke a little bit about Leshy. Leshy is a Slavic forest spirit who makes tricks people who enter their forest. They are, uh, as long as they are within their forest, they are as big as trees. However, when they leave the forest, they turn into the side of a blade of grass. There are also uh, beings known as Leshachika, who are the lives of Leshy, and Leshonke, who are the children of Leshy. 
Um, Leshy is your standard uh, trickster forest spirit where it will make you get lost, it'll make you trip, it'll hurt yourself, it'll make you need a search and rescue team, costing the taxpayers thousands. Um, Leshy uh, is also, I believe, an enemy in The Witcher. And I only know that because I haven't actually played The Witcher 3. I have it for the Switch, but I haven't actually played it yet. Um, but I did kill a Leshy in the Witcher 3 crossover event with Monster Hunter World. <laughs> so yeah. The second of our bosses is Hecate. Hecate is the second of the bishops who represents famine and is the boss of the Anura era. Her throat was slit by the one who waits, and during the boss fight, she harnesses her power of her followers to, for her eldritch form of a giant frog with a cross-shaped, gaping mouth. She is the only female bishop of the old faith. Hecate is also one of our uh, bosses based on a deity. Hecate is the Egyptian goddess of childbirth and fertility. Um, she can either be depicted just straight up as a frog... Or she is a woman with a frog head. In some traditions, she is the wife of Kanum. And the way it works is he creates humans on a pottery wheel. And then she breathes life into them and places them into women's womb. Um, Hecate is also one of the gods that is depicted in the uh, female pharaoh Hatshepsut's uh, procession. And women will wear amulets during labor to help uh, for, to ask for Hecate's help in either, you know, starting labor or to protect them during labor because childbirth is incredibly dangerous, especially back before uh, certain types of medicine. But it was also a little better because there were women and they didn't push all the women out to make it medical for doctors and make them do things like lay down on their backs because you don't actually need to lay down on your back. It's only good for the doctors so they can see what the fuck they're doing. Uh, midwives would have you like squat. Kind of like you were taking your shit. The third major boss of Cold Olam is uh, Calamar. This is the boss of Anchor Deep who lost his ears to the one who waits. Uh, their eldritch form is very similar to their actual form. They rather just glow four large arms that hold a sword, a dagger, a staff, and a holy sphere, which is reminiscent of the holy hand grenade. Uh, from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Um, if you want more uh, fun anecdotes about that, uh, feel free to go back to episode two. The historian tries to recall the entire messy plot of the Arthurian canon. Calamar uh, is uh, not really based on any gods. Um, they take a lot more of the horsemen of pestilence, especially because um, each of these gods uh, bishops can fuck with your followers. Uh, so, for example, Hecate is uh, famine. So what she'll do is she'll summon some of your followers and make them starving because uh, Cult of the Lamb is one part roguelike dungeon crawler, one part community management, uh, which is probably why I had so much fun with it. I had my cult maxed out and I still had like four bosses to go. <laughs> because I was so much better. I'm so much better at community management than fighting. Um, so with Calamar, they're based on the horseman pestilence. So what happens is, uh, Calamar will summon some of your followers and make them sick. And you have to be careful because you don't want too many of your followers getting sick because then they just throw up and shit everywhere and you have to clean that up. And then, um, so, but you, uh, but the downside is, is like, there's no real good way to deal with it. Cause then they have to go rest for a day and you can't make them do labor. Um, there is a chance that Calamar's name is based off of Calamari because they're uh, squidly. Um, I also saw a thing on the um, Cult of the Lamb wiki that there might be a, it might be a combination of Calamari and the god Kali, but the, it's a, it's a stretch. The fourth bishop is Shimura, the eldest. Uh, this is a the non-binary boss of the Silk Cradle area. Their skull was split open by the one who waits, exposing their brain. Um, the quote from the beginning of the episode, the five be points of a pentagram, five becomes four, becomes three, becomes two, becomes none, one becomes nothing, is actually something Shimura says. 
Shermura's domain was knowledge. That's why her head was split open. And she was also the closest to the one who waits. Based heavily on the Horseman of War, when she messes with your followers, she actually summons them. And if you don't have the ability to teleport back to your home base, you actually have to fight and kill your follower. Um, Shimura is also, however, a... Uh, is I can't remember if it's Arabic or Hindu, but it means diamond. Let me... I can double check this while I go through the next one. She, however, um, you get a lot more about her because... Um, Shim it's Assyrian. It's the Assyrian name for diamond is Shimura. But yeah, she feels responsible for the betrayal and de uh, imprisonment of the one who waits because sh her domain is knowledge. So she's the one who led him to believe that there was more. They're not she. They led them to believe that there was more because they loved the one who waits. So those are the four bishops you got to kill. And then when it's time to face off the final, the one who waits, the guy who set you on your journey and made it so you didn't die um the actual the true ending of the game is you have to then refuse to be killed by the one who waits and fight back so that you can keep your cult in your life but before you can fight the one who waits you got to fight his two attendants the first one is ball uh the ball in the game is the son of a a random NPC you meet named Fornius, and it is an attendant to the one who waits alongside her bro their brother Alm. Aim? I think it's actually Aim, not Alm. I wrote that wrong. It is said that they were given to the one who waits by Shimura to keep him company. Uh, it is a big old cat. Fornius is also uh, a interesting figure in uh, demonology, but I'm going to put that in uh, the back pocket for a future episode. Uh, Ball, however, is one of our mythologically based ones because the Ball is the important guard to the Canaanites, being the god of fertility. He was also known as, uh, quote, the Lord of Rain and Dew, which are the two main ways that moisture helped the Canaanite soil. Uh, in Hebrew, Ball's epithet as the storm god was he who rides on the clouds, whereas the Phoenician, he was called Baal Shamen, or the Lord of the Heavens. Uh, so the way things worked is that uh, in Canaanite tradition, every seven years, there was a battle between Baal, the fertility god, and Mot, the death god. And the battle set up the next seven years. If Baal won, life triumphed, and there would be seven years of prosperity. If Mot won, their death consumed all, and there would be seven years of famine and disease. Um, there's... Ball, ball is a very interesting thing, and it's um, something I'd love to talk to more about uh, for a game, but I never beat the game because there is an interesting thing about um, it's Devil Survivor 1. Uh, it's another Atlas game because I play a lot of Atlas games. Um, I actually have Devil Survivor 1 overclocked uh, for the 3DS. Uh, which was the standard Atlas real release of a game on new hardware with extra stuff to make you pay for it again. Um, which my dumbass keeps falling for. Uh, however, I'm not happy with the P3 remake, so I don't know how I feel about that. But this is another tangent that I've gone on. This is like my fifth tangent. But in that game, it's you. Uh, what I remember, there's something about like people fighting to be ball and be the like topped god. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'll play that again once I finish uh, Yokai Watch 3 on my DS. Uh, but I was going to play Final Fantasy 4. Maybe I'll play uh, Devil Survivor 1 instead because I'm playing Final Fantasy 16 on my PS5. This doesn't need to be in the podcast. I can figure out my game schedule later. This is not helping anybody. Okay. So the other attendant to the one who waits is known as AIM, which is spelled A-Y-M. AIM, in addition to his brother... Ball is a child of Fornius and watches the uh, one who waits with uh, and was possibly given to them by Shimura. 
Uh, Aim is our last of the bosses that actually have like a mythological or historical parallel because aim is one of the fallen angels that serves lucifer and also the 23rd of the 72 solomonic spirits and demons in the ars goetta aim is a powerful duke of hell with the body of a hot guy and that's i shit you not verbatim from the thing i found this from it was like he's hot his body is hot but he has three heads a serpent a man and a cat His duties in hell include making people witty, but also compelling them to answer truthfully about private matters. Um, I have a lot less about AIM. Um, I might go more into AIM, because if I do an episode on the 72 uh, 72 demons of Solomon and the Ars Goeta, but that probably would have to be a multi-part episode, if we're being honest. So I'm keeping that in my back pocket for later too. That's one of the interest. That's one of the things because uh, Fornius and a bunch of other minor demons and fights you have in the game are all from the Ars Goeta. And then the final boss of the game is the one who waits, whose true name is Nariander. Uh, in terms of the age, because the, the five, originally one of the five bishops of the old faith, uh, he is literally the middle child. This whole scenario is middle child syndrome because he's older than Hecate, but younger than Calamar, making him the third of the five. He is an avatar of death, both meant to represent the deal with the devil in order to save oneself and the final horseman of the apocalypse. He doesn't interact with your followers directly because he's the one who teaches you how to make followers and he's the one who makes you start the cult in the first place. Uh, Once you finish fighting him, you can actually subjugate him and make him into a follower. And then you can uh, do various quests in the new update that they released for Cult of the Lamb, um, which will give him mementos and memories of his siblings where he will reminisce on their time together. Um not really giving a shit except for Shimura because they were the closest one to them. And yeah, that was the seven main bosses of Cult of the Lamb and their uh, various uh, mythological comparisons. And that's going to do it for this week's episode. Uh, Again, uh, thank you for uh, allowing me to uh, live life a little bit and have some trouble with uh, heat and presence. And uh, yeah, uh, the next two episodes I have planned, I already have them planned, so the notes shouldn't be that bad. Um, they're going to be experimental episodes. I'm trying out segments. So what it's going to be is the next episode is going to be part of a, like, reoccurring segment. I think what I'm going to try to do is every month we'll have, we have about four weeks of each month to plan. And what I want to try to do is to have one week be one type of episode, one week be a different type of episode, and those are the two I'm going to try out next. And then one try to recall, and then one traditional episode, and then if for some reason something happens, either I don't have enough try to recalls or something happens to these other two types of episodes that I'm going to try out, um, I will just substitute in regular episodes. Like, I'm not going to get rid of these episodes. It's just I want to try out some more reoccurring segments. They might not be monthly, um, but it's going to be a fun little experiment to try out and see if people like it. Um, as always, I'd love to hear feedback. You can contact me at White Trash Historian on Instagram or TikTok. Um, in addition, uh, if you want to support the podcast financially, which I would greatly appreciate... Um, you can do so at uh, patreon.com slash cavalcade of tales. Um, yeah, fuck it. I'll say it. Next week's episode is going to be something um, I'm going to try to do, which I'm calling the mythos of blank. And the way it works is I will watch a, is an excuse for me to watch more TV. <laughs> and I will look at a like season of a TV show or something that has a lot of mythological and very or folkloric things happen in it throughout a season and then I will take the first season to start 
I will watch every episode, write down the major folkloric, usually antagonist or just things that they encounter, and then do a sort of like roundup of all of the these various beings. So like this first episode that's coming out next week will be the mythos of Charmed season one. So I'm going to go through the first season of Charmed. I believe it's 22 episodes. Uh, go through and take out like the various like bads and like the monsters of the week that they have to deal with and uh, give more historical folkloric and mythological context for them. Um, yeah, it's going to be something a little different to try. I have a bunch of different series that I have on my wall of ideas, and uh, I hope you guys all like this. Um, but now I'm rambling at the end of the episode, so um, I hope you guys have a good week. Uh, I do plan on having next week's episode come out on Tuesday on its proper time. Um, it may be a little weird because of the holiday, but I will do my best. Um, for those who are listening not in America, uh, Tuesday is uh, the 4th of July where we uh, all celebrate the signing of the Declaration of Independence by a bunch of old white people uh, who people often try to argue would care more about current American politics than they'd actually would. Um, It's really fun being a historian and shitting on people's parades because they'll be like, what would the founding fathers say? And I'm like, oh yeah? Do you have a college degree? Do you own land? Are you male? Because if you answer no to any of those questions, they don't want you fucking voting. Um, all right, enough angry rants. I gotta end this episode. It's going too long. Uh, all right. Thank you. I'll talk to you guys all next week. Bye.